are in the book of Micah. Today we're going to do the introduction. We're going to cover a whole lot of material, but we're only going to get through one verse. Throughout the nation of Israel's history, uh, one of its chief sins was the sin of idolatry. Worshipping images of beasts, false gods that didn't exist. They had a veritable pantheon of false gods. There was Baal. You hear about Baal? You remember the prophets of Baal and Elijah? There was the Ashtaroth, also known as the Queen of Heaven. In Jeremiah, they baked cakes to the Queen of Heaven. There was Chemish. I believe he was an Ammonite god that the Israel's, Israelis picked up. Then there was the infamous Dagon. How many of you remember Dagon? Dagon was the, the idol that they set up in the same tent with the Ark of the Covenant, and God kept knocking him over until his arms fell off. And then there's Marduk. Marduk is the one that's outlined in orange. And then finally, there's Milcom, or Molech. Molech was the god that you had to pass your children through in the fire and burn your children to sacrifice to appease him. I think today we call that Planned Parenthood. But I want you to notice something about all of these gods. If you just look at all of these pictures, what do you notice about what is the same with all of them? What's similar about all of them? Made by hand? Wood, stone. Yeah. They all look like human beings. They all look like humans. They all look like birds or fish or something that they can connect to. They all resemble something here on earth. Even when Israel wanted to make an image of the one true God, when they wanted to make an image of Yahweh in Exodus 32, they made an image of a golden calf. Exodus 32, verse 4. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is the God who performed the ten miracles that delivered you from Egypt, that took you into the wilderness, that parted the Red Sea, that made the Red Sea crash in on the Egyptians. This is the God who made water gush from a rock. This is the God who rained bread from the sky. This golden calf is Yahweh. Long before they sinned by worshiping an idol, they sinned by blaspheming God and diminishing His glory and making him into something that their feeble minds could grasp. Making God just like the creation. And they rob him of his glory. But Yahweh is not like his creation. He is wholly other. It's the idea of majestic holiness, completely set apart from his creation, completely different from his creation. His creation is temporal. It's passing away. He is eternal. His creation is physical. He is a spirit. His creation is finite. He is eternal and infinite. His creation is the work of his own hands that came into existence, and it's totally dependent upon him. He has a satiety, which means he has life in and of himself, and he is dependent upon nobody. He is Nothing like his creation. He is unlike anything or anyone you have ever encountered. There is nothing in nature, in the creation, that is like God. There is no image that could capture his essence. His nature is so infinitely greater than yours and mine that if God had not revealed himself, he would still be shrouded in darkness and mystery, and you could not know him. And your mind would never think up the God of Scripture. No human being ever thought up an infinite, eternal, perfectly holy, spiritual being that cannot be seen. They all came up with images of people and fish and birds. And if God had not revealed himself, you and I would never be able to have a relationship with this God. The Athenians in Paul's day worshipped the unknown God. 
Paul said, look, I'll show you who that God is. He is so much greater than what you can conceive of. Isaiah 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? We learned in Romans 1 that God revealed His existence and His nature through His creation. Romans 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice what they have been clearly seen. When God chose to reveal himself to creation, he did so in a way that it is clear, it is obvious, there leaves no doubt. The God who used to be hidden to you is now revealed to you. This is divine revelation. Revelation reveals, revelation unveils. It brings light to those things hidden in darkness. It answers the begging question. God has so clearly revealed his divine nature and eternal power and creation that all men should give him worship and praise. And when they don't, when you and I don't, that revelation is so clear that it leaves you without excuse when you fail to worship him as he ought to be worshiped. But God didn't just reveal himself in general revelation, in creation. He also revealed himself in special revelation, when God actually spoke to man. That today comes to us through scriptures. Scriptures written by men who were under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God wrote a book, and he wrote that book through human beings. And you ask, well, why did he write it through human beings? Well, um, have you ever spoken to someone that was so smart you didn't understand what they were saying, but they were speaking English? Ever met someone like that? God could have revealed himself in a way that would have been completely confusing to you. He could have spoken a language that no human being has ever heard, and yet he chose instead to reveal himself through other human beings who speak languages that you know that follow normal laws of language and grammar. 1 Peter 1, verse 20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God had a message to send to you, and he sent that message through apostles and prophets. And those apostles and prophets, and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, conveyed that message, that revelation, in words that you can understand using the normal laws of language and grammar. The Bible is a divine message. It's a message given by God to his creation. The book of Micah is not a book just written by a man. It's written by God through a man. The book of Micah is a divine message. Now, there's a point for me going through all that right before we get into Micah. You'll see what that point is in, the morning, in a minute. This morning, I want to look at just verse 1. And I want to give you three characteristics of this divine message. What is the first characteristic of this divine message? First characteristic of the divine message. Seems obvious. It was given by Yahweh. If you look at Micah 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Notice that first phrase, the word of the Lord. You might say, if you have the NASB, it has the word of Yahweh. That's the more literal translation, the word of Yahweh. This phrase takes a very special meaning. One lexicon said it refers to a message from or about God. That's why we're calling this a divine message. It's a message from God. It's not a message cooked up by a guy named Micah. It came from Yahweh. That opening phrase in Hebrew is debar Yahweh, translated very woodenly, words of Yahweh. 
And that phrase applies to the entire book. It doesn't apply just to verse 1. It doesn't apply to just chapter 1. It applies from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book in chapter 7. The entire book is described as being the words of Yahweh. Bruce Waltke, speaking of this Hebrew word debar, which means word. Debar is a collective singular, gathering up into itself about 20 oracles contained in this book, which is a unified whole, and so refers to the whole book. You cannot point to a single verse in the book of Micah and say that, book, that verse was not written by God. All of it is part of the divine message. And in fact, we'll see later that the book of Micah is broken up into three sections. There are three main sections to the book. And in every single section, at least once, it says, this is Yahweh speaking. Let me show you these. We're not going to go to each of them. I'm just going to throw them up on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 2. Lord, God, be a witness against you. Yahweh God, be a witness against you. Witness here refers to a courtroom witness. God is going to testify in court against you, Israel. Chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Lord, there is Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh. Chapter 3, verse 5. Thus says the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Chapter 4, verse 6, declares Yahweh. Chapter 5, verse 10, declares the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, hear what the Lord is saying. Chapter 6, verse 2, listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. Get the point? This is a message from Yahweh. And that phrase again, the word of the Lord, is used a lot in Scripture. It's used repeatedly throughout Scripture. One of the ways it's used is by the prophets to introduce a prophetic sermon. Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah is beginning a sermon. He opens it this way. Hear the word of the Lord. What I'm about to say to you comes from God. They also used it to start their prophetic books. We just saw Micah started his book that way. Here's some other Verses, the word of the Lord. What prophetic books start with this phrase? Here's a couple. Hosea 1, Joel 1, Jonah 1, Zechariah, Malachi. All of them begin their, their prophecies by telling you this comes from Yahweh. This is not something we developed on our own. But if Yahweh is the author... If God is the author of the book, then that means the message he delivers takes on divine attributes. If it comes from Yahweh, it possesses Yahweh's perfect nature. God cannot lie. Therefore, his messages are always right. They are always truthful. Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all of his work is done in faithfulness you're not going to turn in your Bible and find error, misstatements, mistruths, half-truths. His word, his message is absolutely trustworthy in every instance. Psalm 119, verse 105. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When I don't know what's ahead of me, when I don't know where my foot is going to fall, I can trust his word. I can depend upon his word to guide me. His word is trustworthy. It's always right. It's also powerful. It was through his word that God created the universe. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God sends out his word, and he sends out the message and that word will accomplish precisely what he intends. And there's nothing that can stop what he says. If God says this is going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can trust it. 
Isaiah 55, verse 11, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When God writes a prophecy and says this will happen, it's going to happen. His words are tested. They're never going to lead you astray. They're never going to lead you into sin. In Psalm 12, he uses a different Hebrew term, but it has the same meaning. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. They have been tested over and over and over again, and they have been proven to be genuine, accurate, and true. He doesn't need to clarify anything. He doesn't need to amend anything. He doesn't need to update it later. Micah does not need updating. Micah doesn't need the New Testament to update its information. He didn't get it wrong when he said it. It's precisely true all by itself. He does not need a human being to come back to edit, revise, redact, or add to his word. You know these, uh, Deuteronomy 4.2, you do not add to the word which I am giving you. Proverbs 36, do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. The book of the entire Bible ends with a command, do not add or take away from the words of this prophecy. Now, why am I belaboring this point? When you read commentaries on the book of Micah, what you will find is that there are scholars who claim that not all of the book is genuine. In fact, there are many scholars who claim that only the first three chapters of the book of Micah is actually from Micah and is actually trustworthy, and the rest of it can't be trusted. Don't take my word for it. John Merrill Powis Smith. The whole of the genuine material in chapters 1 through 3 belongs to one period. What he's saying there is the only part of this book that's genuine is chapters 1, 1 through 3. The rest of it's not genuine. Mr. Smith actually claims that the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 7, are lost beyond any hope of recovery. Writing on the formation of Micah, he says, it is impossible for us to reconstruct how the book was assembled. Because in his view, it wasn't written by Micah, much less Yahweh. It was written several hundred years later, after the events described occurred. And this unknown editor, this unknown redactor, inserted his additions to the book and made it appear to be Micah's. So you have an author of Scripture who is dishonest, who lied about his identity, posed as a prophet of God who was speaking for God, inserted his lies into the book of Micah, and that's what you have today, according to this liberal scholar. According to men like this, all we really know is that Micah didn't write it. And beyond that, we really know nothing about who wrote it, when, why, or how. This is an attack, not only the, on the authorship of the book, it's an attack on the inspiration of the book. Because if it wasn't written by a prophet, if it was written sometime after the prophets, then it's no longer a message from God. Now, to be sure, Mr. Smith is a little bit more liberal than others. What about conservative theologians? Well, they teach and hold to something very similar. At the end of Micah 2, God through Micah, promises to gather all of his people again and restore them. Micah 2, verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of the pasture. They will be noisy with men. This is a promise that God is going to restore Israel one day. Leslie C. Allen, in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, which is generally a good commentary, says that the term remnant here is problematic. It's problematic because, well, let me just let you hear from him. The prophet addresses an audience who readily associate the word with great expectations of future good rather than with dread and disaster, who apparently prize old prophetic promises and look for their fulfillment. Here's, here's the key. From our present knowledge, it is difficult to view 8th century B.C. Judah as the home of such accepted hopes. See what he's saying? When I look back on 8th century Judah 
the time of Micah, I don't see any historical evidence that he could have any kind of hope that there would be a restoration for Israel. And therefore, Micah didn't write it. So how does he explain the presence of that text in the book? If Micah didn't write it, how did it get there? Leslie Allen again. The oracle is generally assigned to the exilic or post-exilic period. That is to say, someone else, three, four hundred years later, when Israel was about to return to the land, or after Israel had returned to land, someone else went in there and wrote in the prophecy and pretended like it was prophetic. But it really just was written after the event occurred. It wasn't written before the return. It was written sometime after. So how did he come up with this? What evidence does he provide for it? Well, nothing from the text other than the use of one word. He is engaging in what is called historical criticism. And the emphasis here is on criticism. Historical critics attempt to resolve supposed problems with authorship, dating, unity, and even historical veracity of biblical books by the use of skepticism, analogy, and coherence. Gerhard Meyer, who wrote a little book, a little book is called The End of Historical Criticism, said this. Speaking of historical criticism, it's a method which is not asserted but is used as a scholarly tool. It represents a prejudgment in the sense of an a priori decision concerning the outcome. That is to say, they take their presuppositions and they use the presuppositions to understand the text. I have a belief, and I'm just going to insert my belief onto the text and tell you what the text means. And by the way, the presupposition is a presupposition of unbelief. I'm going to come to the text with a critical attitude. When you do that, the only logical thing for you to do at the end of that, the only logical conclusion, is for you to end up with a conclusion that says the book isn't true. Gerhard Meyer again. A critical method of Bible interpretation can produce only Bible-critical propositions. The critical was the motor and the accelerator of the movement. That's what got it its steam. On it rested the determining accent. In the field of the new critical lay the numerous assumptions of the new method, assumptions that were questioned less and less and were often protected simply by the modern outlook or even simpler by the sentence, we just can't go back beyond that. We're going to undermine the credibility and the authorship of the book and the historical veracity of the book based solely on our presuppositions, on what we think about the book. So what are some of these presuppositions? First one is skepticism, analogy, and coherence. What is skepticism? These all come out of the Enlightenment period. What is skepticism? Skepticism means you read the Bible like any other ancient myth. It's a myth. When you read Chronicles of Narnia, you have to willfully suspend your disbelief. Well, when you read the Bible, don't suspend your disbelief. Hold on to it. Read it as though it's just a myth. Analogy means that you test the historical accuracy of the book by your present experience. Think about that for a moment. You take your present experience, go and read the Bible, and if your present experience doesn't match what the Bible says, then the Bible must not be true. How does that apply? Well, in my present experience, God did not part the Red Sea. Therefore, when Moses wrote that God parted the Red Sea, he was lying. He was telling a myth. If people are not being resurrected today, then Jesus was not resurrected from the grave. If God is not speaking to prophets today, then he didn't speak to prophets back then either. And if you think I'm kidding, go read some of the commentaries. This is exactly what they end up with. Historical criticism denies all supernatural events and miracles. When applied to the Bible, it guts the Bible of any and all divine action and work. Creation, the resurrection, the new birth, the healing ministry of Christ, the return of Christ, all of it is turned into nothing more, th more than myth. Finally, the last one is coherence. By the way, these definitions come from a guy named Bruce Waltke. 
Coherence refers to viewing every event described as having an origin in, natural, in the natural world. Nothing can be caused by supernatural or divine activity. This kind of feeds off the last one. And this is why Mr. Allen, when he goes back and he looks at Micah 2 that says God's going to restore Israel, he says, no, that can't be true. There's no way Micah could know that because Mr. Allen doesn't believe that God speaks through and to men. He denies supernatural activity, at least in that text he does. But if there is no supernatural, if there is no divine action, if all of it is myth, then the Bible is not inspired. Historical criticism is an attack on God's word. And when you read commentaries on Micah, you will see it everywhere, which is why I'm going through it today. Brevard Childs, who, by the way, agrees with historical criticism. Few books illustrate, as well as does Micah, the present crisis in exegetical method. In spite of many good insights and interesting observations of detail, the growing confusion over conflicting theories of composition has increasingly buried the book in academic debris. Debris would be the right word. Because when they reject the truth of what the Bible actually says, they have to come up with something new. They have to come up with some explanation of why it's there. And since there's no evidence other than what the Bible says, they have to make it up. They have to guess. And so you'll find all sorts of conflicting theories on why this happened or why that's there. Dale Ralph Davis calls it guesswork. Read a critical discussion on the book of Micah. See if it doesn't read like pages of chaotic guesswork. It's exactly true. I said it's the hermeneutic of unbelief, and the reality is, look, if you believe the Bible is inspired, you believe it's from God, historical criticism is an attack on that view. And you can't say the Bible's inspired by God and then turn around and say, well, I'm going to have a critical attitude toward what God said, and I'm going to determine whether or not what the Bible says, what God says, is true or not. Gerhard Meyer, let us assume that the generally accepted canonical scriptures are really the witness of divine revelation. Just take the assumption for a moment. I know you agree with it. Then it is clear to every knowledgeable observer that in this case and for this subject, a critical method must fail because it presents an inner possibility. For the counterpart to revelation is not critique, but obedience. It is not correction, but it is let me be corrected. The historical critics have it completely backwards. They're supposed to submit to Scripture, not try to make Scripture submit to them. This is not Christian. This is not a Christian view of the Bible. And when you go through and you read commentaries, Old and New Testament, when they start attacking the authorship of the Bible, this is where it comes from. When you see crazy theories that some miracle didn't happen, this is where it comes from. This is also not scholarship. I call it dumpster fire scholarship. Let's go on to the second characteristic of this divine message. First one, it's given by Yahweh. Second one, it was given to Micah. Look at verse 1 again. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This divine message was given to a guy named Micah. So who is Micah? Well, when you go into the Old Testament, you find out that there are nine different Micahs in the Old Testament. And what we're going to do is we're going to go into the Bible and we're going to go look at all of them. And No, no, we're not. Um, no, we don't have time for that. And the reality is we don't need to do that because there's only two of these guys that could possibly be the author of this text. The last two. But the problem is both of them are referred to as prophets. And so you have to ask the question, are these the same guy? Could the prophet in the days of Ahab be Micah of Moresheth? Could they be the same person? Well, the answer there is no. The prophet in the days of Ahab, Ahab reigned roughly 100 years before the kings here in Micah 1, which means this prophet would have been dead long before Micah showed up. Ahab was a king of the northern kingdom, the prophets we have listed here, the kings we have listed here in Micah 1 are from the southern kingdom. So the only possible one is the last one, Micah of Moresheth. He's mentioned twice, 
in the book of the Bible. There's only two mentions of them anywhere. Micah 1 and one other in Jeremiah, which we will look at in a minute. What do we know about Micah of Moresheth? Well, first we know that he comes from a rather humble and obscure background. We know that because, well, we don't know a whole lot about his background at all. When Isaiah wanted to identify himself, he identified himself as the son of Amos. He pointed back to his father and said, look, you probably know my dad, so I'm his son. Now you know who I am. Micah doesn't point to his dad, which means his dad likely wasn't very well known, and pointing to his dad probably wouldn't have helped anyone figure out who he is. His parents, his dad and his mom, were likely very devout believers. Why do we say that? Because of his name. They named their son Micah. Micah is actually an entire sentence. It's several words put together. It means, who is like Yah? Yah is the short form of Yahweh. He actually uses his name at the end of the book. Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? In the Hebrew, that reads, same as Micah. Instead of using his father's name or trying to build off his family lineage, because nobody knows who it is, he identifies himself with the name of the town that he was born in. Now, the exact location of the town is unknown, but it's believed to be about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, which on the back of your handout, you have a map, in case you're struggling to see the map up here. The purple dot is Jerusalem. The red dot up there is Moresheth. This little town sat in a large valley called the Sheplah. The Sheplah was an important valley because that was the route, if you wanted to invade Israel, that was the route you had to take to get to Jerusalem. And it means that his hometown likely bore the brunt of all the invasions. And at that time, the Assyrians were growing in power, and they spent a lot of time going through the Sheplah. He likely, Michael likely left Moresheth for Jerusalem, for the purpose of his ministry. We don't know when he left. But Micah clearly understood that he was a prophet. He knew he had a job. He knew he was called by God to speak for God. Micah 3, verse 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with the Spirit of Yahweh. And as a man of God, as a prophet, he knew his Old Testament well. When you go through the book of Micah, you will find he makes continual references to previous books of the Old Testament. In 6.4, he refers back to the Exodus and the time when God delivered them out of Egypt. In 6.5, he talks about God delivering the people of Israel from Balaam and Balak in the book of Numbers. In 3.11, he refers back and says that the Mosaic Law prohibited bribery. In 7.18, he seems to reference back to Exodus 34 and says that God is forgiving, loving, and compassionate. He knows his Bible well. He was a man who loved the Word. He lived it out. He enjoyed it. And like many in ministry, he seems to have encountered some opposition to his ministry. Not everybody was so happy with Micah's prophecies. Micah 2, 6 and 7, do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Apparently people are saying, you're hurting us with what you're saying. We don't like what you're saying. You need to stop. But Micah said, no. I'm going to keep saying what I'm required to say. I'm going to keep telling you this message. Micah 3.8, I read the first part of this before. Here's the other part. And with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even Israel his sin. All of the opposition in the world was not going to stop Micah from delivering his divine message. And just... To be sure, Micah did not live in a time of peace and comfort. You can say these were turbulent times. We know that because of the three kings there in Micah 1. 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This period of time of these three kings was very unstable politically. First note, these three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, are all kings of Judah. Remember in 1 Kings 12, the nation of Israel split. You had the northern and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. That was un- and uh, Jeroboam the first took over the northern kingdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. The southern capital was Jerusalem. In Samaria, Jeroboam was not in the line of David. David was God's chosen king. Jeroboam was not a son of David. He was not in David's line, and he had no right to rule over Israel. And all of his successors were in the same boat. None of them had a right to claim the throne of Israel. They all refused to submit to Yahweh's appointed ruler. And so Micah refuses to include any of the kings of the north in his list here. You've rejected Yahweh, I'm not going to put you in my book. The political instability of the northern capital of Samaria is best demonstrated in the number of assassinations that occurred. If you look on the handout, on the right side of that chart you'll see um, kings of Israel all the way over into the right. The kings I have up here in red were all assassinated while they were kings. And they were assassinated by people in their own country. Usually by the guy who was trying to take over after them and trying to take his place. From 753 to 722, in the span of just 31 years, four out of six kings were assassinated in the northern kingdom. In the south, in Jerusalem, the kings weren't assassinated, but the political situation wasn't really stable. The three kings you have in Micah 1.1 all reigned between 750 B.C. and 686. During that time, there was another nation that was growing in power and influence, the nation of Assyria. Their king, Tilgath-Pileser, you'll see him referred to as Pool in the Old Testament, was growing an army. And he began making incursions into Israel. The first king Micah mentions is Jotham, who was generally described as a good king. But during his reign, Pul, the king of Assyria, invades the northern kingdom, and he turns the northern kingdom into a vassal state. And says, you're going to do what we want, and by the way, you're going to pay me a whole bunch of money every year in tribute. And the king of the north said, okay. And Assyria began sapping the northern kingdom of its resources and its sovereignty. This likely happened when Micah was a child, which is why it's not included in his book. After Jotham came was Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked king. With Ahaz, Assyria was gaining strength and control over the northern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom, under a guy named Pekah, which you'll see down at the right hand of that chart from 747 32, Pekah decides, I'm going to try to make an alliance. And I'm going to make an alliance with the Syrians, and then we're going to get Judah, the southern kingdom, to join us, and we're all going to go and we're going to fight off the Assyrians. Well, the southern kingdom says, look, we don't want to have any part of this. We're not going to fight the Assyrians. And so the northern kingdom, along with the Assyrians, decide, well, if they won't fight the Assyrians, we'll fight them. And they invade the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom ends up losing 120,000 soldiers and over 200 Judeans are taken captive. Ahaz begins to think, well, I'm in trouble. I'm about to lose my throne. They're going to come in and wipe me out and they're going to take over. So Ahaz, this wicked king, instead of turning to Yahweh and saying, hey, look, I'm supposed to be here and they're invading, he decides he's going to go make an alliance. Who does he make an alliance with? Assyria. The very guy they were trying to get him to go fight. 
And Assyria was so happy because Assyria said, sure, we'll come in. We'll save you. And then you get to pay us tribute and do what we want. And so Assyria comes into the south, turns the south into a vassal state, and the south begins paying tribute to the Assyrian king. In the north again, I'm sorry, we're jumping back and forth. Their final king, Hosea, decides he's going to get brave. And he refuses to pay the Assyrian king tribute. And says, look, I'm tired of funding you. I'm not going to pay you anymore. And the Assyrian king says, really? Then I'm going to invade. And in 722, the Assyrian king comes into the northern kingdom and he wipes them out. And destroys the northern kingdom and the capital, Samaria. The final king mentioned here by Micah is Hezekiah. Hezekiah was generally a good king. He left some of the high places and other places, so there's still some false worship going, but generally he was a good king. But when he comes into power, a little city called Ashdod decides that they are tired of the Assyrians. And they, along with Edom and Moab, form an alliance And they go to Hezekiah and say, hey, Hezekiah, you need to join us in this alliance so we can fight off the Assyrians. We don't like these people anymore. Hezekiah refused. And he refused because a prophet named Isaiah, who was ministering about the same time as Micah, came to him and said, this is a bad idea. God says, don't do it. And Hezekiah listened to him, and he says, nope, I'm not going to do it. Ashdod, Edom... And Moab all rise up against Assyria. Assyria comes in and wipes them out too. But there's also another event in Hezekiah's reign that we need to mention. Because it's particularly relevant to Micah. Eventually, a guy named Sennacherib took over in Assyria. Does that name sound familiar? He took over in 705. And when Sennacherib takes over, Hezekiah, just like these other kings, decides, I'm just tired of paying this guy money. And now we got this new king, maybe he's kind of weak and he won't care. And so Hezekiah refuses to pay the tribute. And Sennacherib was not pleased, and he mounts up his army and he invades in 701. And his army makes it all the way to the city of Jerusalem. And his army surrounds the city. Bruce Waltke says Sennacherib hemmed in Jerusalem with an overwhelming army. You can actually go back into the historical records and find Sennacherib writing about this. Where he said that he had Hezekiah like a prisoner, like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah rightly understood that there was nothing that was going to save Jerusalem. He actually contacted Egypt and asked Egypt to come in and help, and they tried, and Assyria wiped them out too. He couldn't trust in his army. He couldn't trust in his walls. He knew the Assyrians were going to wipe out Jerusalem. So he prays to God, and God delivers him. 2 Kings 19.35, then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. A divine miracle. And again, the historical critics will say, no, 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 that wasn't a miracle. It wasn't an angel. It was the plague. Hezekiah prays the Lord and God answers in dramatic fashion. But it wasn't just the preaching of Isaiah that caused that. Remember I told you there were two mentions of Micah in the Bible? The second mention of Micah is found in Jeremiah 26. And he refers to this event. Listen to what Jeremiah says about why Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh here. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death, speaking of Micah? 
Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord, and the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them? But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Micah was this guy from this unknown town with an unknown dad who had nothing for him other than the fact that he was a prophet. And he goes and he preaches to a king. And God uses that preaching to save the king's throne and to save the city. He was well known and respected as a prophet. He delivered a divine message that God gave him for Hezekiah just as he delivered a divine message that God gave him here in the book of Micah. Okay, so what was that message? This brings us to the third characteristic of the divine message. It was given about Israel's injustice. It was given about Israel's injustice. Notice verse 1 again. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. If I had time, we'd talk about the phrase, which he saw, but we don't have time. This was a vision. We'll put it there. Now, we need to understand that while Micah was a prophet primarily to the southern kingdom, his prophecies include both the north and the south. So when you read through the book of Micah, He'll have both of them in there. And they're here represented by their respective capitals. Concerning Samaria, that refers to the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem refers to the southern kingdom. So he's kind of lumping the whole nation together. And he's prophesying against the entire nation as if it was still unified. And he breaks his book up into three sections. You have this on your handout. This is not my graphic. This is a professor who made this? There are three sections of the book. Each section begins with a statement referring to hearing. Chapter 1, verse 2, hear, O peoples. Chapter 3, verse 1, and I said, hear now. Chapter 6, verse 1, hear now what the Lord is saying. And each section, each of the three main sections, as you see there in your handout, begins with a, declare, a declaration of judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming because both kingdoms, the entire nation of Israel, was acting wickedly and unjustly. And I just want to show you real quick, again with a list, but this will take us through the book real quick. I want you to see what he says about the nation, both north and south. He describes them in chapter 2 as scheming iniquity, planning it out devising it. They covet fields and they take houses. They rob people of their property. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, he says they don't just go after their neighbors. They go after the person passing by, the traveler. They rob him and strip him too. They evict women from their homes. And if you think, well, that's just the population. No, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, even the leaders are unjust. The political leaders, the, the spiritual leaders, they're unjust, they're cruel. And he says, you guys should know better. You guys are leaders. In fact, in verse 9, he says the leaders of Israel abhor, they hate justice. They despise it. Chapter 3, verse 10, they build Jerusalem with violent injustice. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, even if you go to the court to see the judges, don't worry about it, the judges are corrupt too. They won't give you a fair read either. In chapter 4, God says he will restore those who are lame and outcast, those who have been the recipients of the injustice. He's going to restore them. In chapter 6, verse 8, he says, God requires that you do justice. Verse 11, 12, he says, Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? Wicked scales refers to using unjust weights to cheat people out of their money. And you think, well, you know, that's just, maybe that's just some of them. No, 
chapter 7, verse 2, there are no righteous. And he describes them hunting one another. Even the princes take bribes. Your future kings take bribes. Chapter 7, he says, no one is trustworthy. And he describes that in the way like this. It's actually reminiscent of the New Testament. Daughter will rise up against her mother. A man's enemies will be of his own household. He says, do not trust your friend. Do not trust your neighbor. No one is trustworthy. What is Micah's message to this unjust nation? His message is this. It's the title of the series. Justice is coming. And I think that phrase adequately, and it's the best phrase I can think of to describe the message of Isaiah. Not Isaiah. Micah. Wrong prophet. Justice is coming. To the unjust, his message is this. Justice is coming. Judgment is coming. God is going to repay you for your deeds. He's going to punish you for your wickedness and your injustice. He will render to you exactly what you deserve. Your time is limited. Your days are numbered. Justice is coming for you. And to those who are oppressed, to those who are being brutalized, his message is the same. Justice is coming. When God judges the wicked and the unjust, he will comfort you, he will restore you, and he will bring you justice. He will provide you all that you need. There is a day coming when those who have mistreated and abused you will receive the justice they deserve. And so their justice is a comfort to his people. But this justice, all the way through the book, centers on one person. The arrival of one person. The arrival of a future king who will restore Israel. Who will rule and who will reign in righteousness with justice and with equity. Justice is coming and it's coming in a king. It's coming in a person. Micah 2 verse 13. So their king goes on before them. And the Lord at their head, Yahweh at their head, their king is put in parallel with God. And he says, until that great day, until that king arrives, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to do the same thing Micah does. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Justice is coming. Just be patient and wait on the Lord. All right, we have two minutes. Any questions, comments? If that's it, uh, let me close this in prayer and we'll be done. Father, again, we, we thank you. We thank you that uh, you have sent prophets, apostles uh, to speak to us, to give us your word, to declare truth to tell us what we should do and what we should expect and what we should wait for, that you have revealed yourself in your word, that your word is trustworthy, that is true, that is right, that it is a revelation of you. So we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that we have that gift, that we get to have a relationship with you through Christ. And we ask that you would be with us this morning in our worship that we would glorify you in spirit and in truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.